this tent There you are You're running for your life You're a shooting star And all the years No one knows Just how hard you worked But now it shows In one shining moment It's all on the line One shining Coaches, welcome to the Championship Vision Podcast. This is Coach Kevin Furtado. Today is episode 126. Today we have Coach Jeremy Bialik. Jeremy Bialik has coached basketball for a quarter century. He's currently in his second season as the assistant men's basketball coach at NEI member Trinity Christian College. In his first season, Coach Bialik helped the Trolls double their conference win total achieved the second most wins in the last nine campaigns, finished 24th in the nation for three-point makes per game at 9.9, and produced the second-best assist-to-turnover ratio in program history since the NAIA started tracking that stat. He was also instrumental in developing transfer sophomore James Pennington into an NCCAA all-region selection. Before coming to Trinity, Coach Bialik spent 18 seasons as the varsity head coach at Indianapolis Homeschool. During his tenure with the Wildcats, his teams compiled 14 straight winning seasons and advanced to seven national tournament Final Fours. At the close of his final season with the Cats, Coach Bialik had won 440 games, which stood 15th in career wins amongst all active boys high school coaches in Indiana. He won the 2019 NCH. BC National Championship, two NCHBC Midwest Regional Crowns, six ICBA state titles, twice as many state titles as any other coach in the history of Indiana Christian Basketball Association state tournaments, and seven conference championships. Winning the last five in a row, his squads have also been listed at the top of the nation's high schools in rankings and stats. In 2018-19, his Cats ended the season ranked in the CBS Sports Backs Preps National Top 250 and as number eight in Indiana. Coach Bialik's 2017-2018 team finished the season as the second-best three-point shooting high school team in the nation, making 9.8 per game. The 2014-15 squad finished 12th in team scoring among all high schools in America, averaging 85.5 points per game. Bialik's coaching career has produced an NCHBC Maravich Award winner National Player of the Year, an NCHBC National Defensive Player of the Year, 14 NCHBC All-Americans, and 20 players who went on to play in college, four at NCAA Division I schools, including one NBA player and one overseas pro. Coach Bialik began his career at Perry Meriden High School in Indianapolis, Indiana, as a varsity assistant from 1995 to 2000. In his five campaigns, the Falcons won a sectional title and finished as Marion County runners-up twice. Jeremy attended high school at Christian Brothers Academy, Syracuse, New York, earning varsity letters in basketball, cross-country, and track. He played basketball under New York State Hall of Fame coach Buddy Walensky, 
where he was part of CBA's 1991 sectional title. He then earned his BS in Telecommunication Arts from Butler University in 1996 and MS in Media Management from Syracuse University, SI Newhouse School of Communications in 2001. Jeremy is the son of former Utica College men's basketball coach Joseph Bialik, is married to Julie and lives in Indianapolis with their nine kids, Allie, Jer, JD, Jonah, Annalisa, Jordan, Jacob, Judah, and Josiah. Coaches, it's going to be a great opportunity to speak to Jeremy. Um, I want to get his, currently right now, he's he's moved up to the to college ranks as an assistant coach at Trinity Christian. But I want to talk to him about what he did at um, his home school and how he built that program. I'm just very curious on uh, kind of the things he did to kind of get that program really to where it's one of the best in the country. So I think you're really going to enjoy the perspective that Jeremy offers. So let's welcome Coach Jeremy Violet. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, there we are. <laughs> Coach, welcome back, man. I, I th- Hey, we're becoming pretty tight, man. I, this is coming <laughs> con, uh, continuous conversation. No doubt, and during hey, during times like this, man, I think it's good. Um, a lot of a lot of coaches right now are really connecting. It's really cool online. So, hey, yeah, welcome welcome to the podcast, man, and I, I appreciate you joining me. Yeah, absolutely, it's a pleasure to do so. Hey, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how you grew up in the game. And, and I know uh, you've coached at many different levels and how you created this great passion for what you're doing. Uh, well, yeah, it's, I can't take a lot of credit for the passion. I think it kind of comes a little bit from the surroundings you're in. And then somewhat, I think some of us are born with that bug, you know, uh, and I came from a family where my dad played basketball in high school, played as a freshman at Syracuse University, eventually helped start um, the Utica College basketball program, a Division three school in upstate New York. And and he was done with that uh, when I got to the place where uh, I was growing up. But uh, he yeah, always was watching games with me and uh, showing me how to do things basketball wise and so it was a way to spend time with my dad, a way to impress my dad. And uh, then obviously he's going to my games and the older I got, he, he's playing against me. And so that, that kind of thing really helps, I think, foster a passion. But then they get a little good at it maybe and some success. I think it was a challenge for me when I was younger. I got cut from three straight teams in elementary and early junior high school. And so it almost drove me to want to succeed at it. And then I found I could teach it. And so uh, later in my college uh, career, I, I determined, hey, I think I want to coach this and took some classes on it, got an internship. And then a guy named uh, Mark Barnheiser, who's still coaching in Indiana, I think he's got like 500 wins now. Uh, he took a flyer on me as a guy right out of college and, and said he'd reports about me made me his assistant and really that was one of the best things that could have happened to me because I learned how to teach uh, the game fundamentally uh, how to break things down and and build up especially defensively what we want to be uh, and the five years I spent in his program were 
dramatically influential in my uh, development as a coach. I spent a year in New York at grad school under a former D3 coach uh, in John Ian, who coached in Pennsylvania, and uh, spent a year under him. And I got to start my own program uh, and was there for 18 years. And even within that, you know, pouring into me from a coach's standpoint, from uh, teaching me how to mentor young men and, and teach different types of learning styles, different personalities. So I've just been blessed to be around a lot of different people that have inputted in my life, helped me to love basketball and love what I think are the right things about basketball. Uh, and that, that's been special for me. And I, I hope to be able to do that in some way for other players and young coaches that are coming up uh, because it, it'd be a bummer. I wouldn't be where I am if I did this thing alone. Yeah. And you've had some great mentors and so forth, but it's also to your credit. I feel like, um, you know, people who are, really have teaching and coaching in your blood. Cause that's what, you know, we talked about that before. I think you found a way to kind of develop your own philosophy and system, but you learn, you learn from really prominent, good coaches. And I think it's really important to have mentors, right? It is. It is. And I think sometimes the mentors, you may not even know who those mentors are. You may not, um, like the mentor you might choose is maybe not the best mentor for you. And I think that's hard sometimes. I know a lot of players transfer in these days. They, they don't have what they want, jump ship quickly. And sometimes uh, that person the wrong way and, and rubbed the wrong way by them. Sometimes that's ex- exactly the person you need. Uh, and I remember, you know, I didn't agree with my high school coach on a lot of things and didn't necessarily like the offense we ran or whatever, you know, you, everything uh and he's in the new york state hall of fame now and i still talk (laughs) to him and and he's and he's talks about how he's still trying to learn and and when you guys that are that hungry for learning the game that have been uh the people that teach you uh you learn quick i think i think when i was younger i had my favorite systems like my dad was loved princeton basketball he was a fast break guy in high school, so he still loved the fast break, but there was something about Princeton basketball that he loved Pete Carrell. And so I grew up loving Pete Carrell stuff. And I thought, man, if I can teach Pete Carrell stuff, we'll be great. And you, and then you realize, well, at some point, you've got to shape things for your players, you know, for who you've got, especially when you're in high school and you don't have a lot of choice on who you get. Uh, college is a little bit different. You can recruit to it. But I, I, I figured out having to coach styles that I may not have chose as a and then having to tweak my style because of the players I had. I learned what I think we all need to learn as coaches, that there is no one championship style of offense or one championship style of defense. There's uh, drilling down and teaching something to the point where you can execute it well with you know you have against the teams that you're playing. And, uh, and that, and that's fun to be able to, once you, once that door opens up and you're not stuck in one place, one, uh, man, that opens a world up of influence from different people and, uh, in styles. And it's the same way with, I think, coaching young men and, and trying to train them up, it, you know, do it one way. You're going to run into a kid that doesn't respond to that. And the big step for me 
was to realize that God had kind of put me, I believe, with a lot of different people, a lot of different styles, so I could learn how to drill down and teach different things uh, to get, uh, I guess, a, a fuller portfolio to use, which has really blessed me. Yeah, the no doubt it has, because uh, you know we're going to go we're going to go through you know now really what you believe in, Jeremy. Uh, but before we do that, what do you recommend for players to do now during the virus? Um, and I think it's it's just plain and simple. It's old school, get a ball, handle, pass against the wall, things like that. Don't you believe we? Uh, it, this is really a good time for player development. Oh, it is. It's a, it's an incredible time for player development. When I was, uh, I, one of my jobs that I've uh, previous uh, was being a pastor, and they required me to take a sabbatical, which I did not like. I, at the time, I, I, the idea of being away for ninety days from the job that I had was just like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and they, they said, no, you are going to do it, and you're not going to be around, and you can't talk to anybody here, and it's just about you resting and developing. And I, and that was. It was a spectacular time. Like I would honestly recommend for coaches uh, that they learn the power of taking a day every. I, I I believe day every week, but but then not only taking a day, but taking a season, just a a, a time span. It doesn't have to be ninety days to rest and develop yourself. And so, as coaches, we might be able to do that in the off season. Players always say, "Oh, there's no off season." But I think there's a time to set certain things aside to do other things. And in this case, we've been forced to set a time aside where you can't be with your teammates and you can't do five on five necessarily uh, unless you've got a big family. I happen to have a big family, so we can at least run like three on three, four on four at times. But, but <laughs> the, the players that are just out there on their own, and I'm, I even talked to a couple of my players today and asked them, how are you doing and, and, and what are you doing to – uh, kind of stay in shape and so on. Uh, but I, I honestly think that things to do during this time aren't just like ball handling. You can get some shots in on an outdoor goal. That that, that doesn't kill you. Uh, all these drills that you've learned in practice, those, I think one of the best things guys could do, and maybe it's just because I'm a video junkie, is go back and watch every single one of your games from this year. If those of you have huddle or crossover or whatever platform, yeah, even if your games are on uh, YouTube, whatever, wherever they are, go back and watch your games and watch yourself with a critical eye with a piece of paper and a pen and write down possession by possession what you could have done better and what you did well and just mark them and say, okay, now, now I've got this list. And if you make that big list game by game by game, you'll start to see trends. Oh, boy, I'm not really good at going left or pulling up going right or i'm not i'm not really good at uh garden post or i'm not good at whatever it may be you're going to start to see weaknesses that, that you can maybe work on and even if you can't work on garden a post right now you can recognize it to the point where you get back in the gym and you say i'm going to work on that uh, i maybe i don't check out uh real well and so i need to work on finding my man on checkout so there's so I, I guarantee if players watched every single one of their games with a critical eye. A lot of times we try to <laughs> pridefully as we think we know video doesn't lie and we hate being in that room when coaches picking on us in front of everybody. But man, this is yourself. No one else is around. 
and you just determine these are the things I need to work on in my game. And if you can work on them now, go work on them. But if you can't just, you know, make up your mind that I'm going to work on them when I get out. But I, I think if you're going to be spending time looking at the screen, don't be binge watching a bunch of shows. Don't be doing, you know, video game central, get there and watch your game film because you will see things about yourself that you don't like. And it's fun. You know, you, I, those of us who miss it, it's fun to go back and watch games. So I think that'd be what I'd tell players to do. That's a great idea. Matter of fact, that's, I'm actually putting some things together. We have huddle and all our players have access to it and they can go in on their own and really just the video clips they can put together is so simple. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm going to recommend for them a lot is to go back and just kind of, um, you know, rehash. And you're right though, is, is don't pick out 10 points, pick out one or two that you need to get better, but also pick out things that you're doing well, because don't you agree, Jeremy, it's easier to pick out criticisms than positive. Most players can't pick out positive things. It depends. I think it's, I think there are two kinds of guys. I mean, that I've, I've coached some of them. You could tell them 10 times over and show them on the video a hundred times that they're doing that wrong. And they, what are you talking about? coach? So there are some of those, but I do. That's think, true. I think there are the best. I think the best players are pretty self-aware and critical. Uh, and when they're, especially when they're working at themselves, um, it, you've got to keep the positive at the forefront. If all I do is watch game film of us playing poorly, I can get pretty discouraged. It's helpful to watch some of the good ones too. Absolutely. Hey, let's talk about your program or, or let's talk about your five strengths of your program. Cause I know right now you're an assistant coach at Trinity Christian um, and you have a big uh, responsibility on helping develop the culture and philosophy but kind of combine that with your great success at your Indianapolis homeschool. What are your top five strengths in your program? Uh, I would say our top five uh, strengths from high school and some of them translate. So um, I may just hit on those and then say if there are a few different ones that we might have at Trinity. Um, but the, at, at Indianapolis homeschool, uh, we determined it, when I first started there, we had about four losing seasons in a row great kids, worked hard, uh, but really, and I kept thinking if we just got to basketball, everything thought is that you've got to keep sustaining the things that you do have. So we like character and integrity. I don't know, kind of like we find in 2009. We had beaten three times that year handily by 19 plus points every time. And, and we, we blew it. We lost, we played poorly. They played great. And, uh, and I remember the meltdown that occurred uh, from a basketball standpoint, from a character standpoint, it was bad. And, and I, and I just remember thinking, this isn't what I wanted when I thought if we just got good at basketball. So I was driving back from a conference. My wife and I put together what I would say is a parallel to uh, I graduated from Butler and they called the Butler way. And so we called it the wildcat mm -hmm. way. That was our nickname on that, on that team. And so I'll just, so this, to me, nothing else matters on the other things I'll talk about. If you don't have this foundation, there's a verse in the Bible that says uh, Jesus Christ is the only foundation that can be laid and then be careful how you build on the foundation. So I think it's 
key to have the right foundation. And then it's, you've got to be careful what you put on top of that foundation. So we, we said, we are the Lord's not our own. Therefore we play his way. We commit to sacrifice individual desires and goals to joyfully serve the Lord through team basketball, to communicate with boldness and kindness on and off the court, to vigilantly guard against division, distraction, and discouragement, to respect our God-given talents, authorities, teammates, and opponents, to play as one body with unmatched enthusiasm and energy focused on spirited, suffocating defense and passionate, precise offense, to treasure every possession of every game, to lead by using our influence, to encourage character, diligence, and excellence in everything, to glorify God in victory and defeat, and to play in such a way as to win an imperishable pride. So that was the foundation. And I know uh, we're, we're a Christian organization, so uh, there are some spiritual elements in there that may not translate to every program, but I think there are a lot of things there that translate to every program about what you value and what you're going for. And that leapfrogged into, well, then what is it that we're chasing? What's our ultimate goal um, we had every kid memorize that they had to recite it if they were going to be part of the varsity team. And then we could take them back to that as this is what you committed to. Uh, but as we're saying, this is what we're committing to It's then, well, then what really are we going after if those are our values? And we figured out that if we just go after winning, uh, we might actually sell ourselves a little short that, that we could, that one team that almost won the state, they had, almost had an undefeated season. Uh, they, they'd only lost one game going into that. They had a spectacular year, but they hadn't grown as much as they could have even winning all those games. And so we, we said we want to push past winning. So one of our core principles is chasing excellence instead of chasing wins or championships. We want to pursue excellence. So when, when someone does something that, that we might say, oh, that isn't the way we wanted that to go, we can ask them, were you pursuing excellence there or were you pursuing something for yourself or were you just pursuing a win and that's why you quit when we were up 20 and stopped doing what you should be doing? So pursuing excellence is one. Uh, allowing failure was another big one. Uh, it, it's something that in our culture we don't like to fail and we actually guard ourselves against failure. But I read a book that someone recommended for me called The Talent Code. And I'd, I'd encourage every coach to read it. It's not a sports book per se, but it has sports in it. Uh, but it's about how your brain works in a, in, in how the talent factories around the world, some of them are sports, but others music and different things, how they produce uh, excellent players, excellent musicians, excellent whatever, all the time. Like, how is it that they do it? And they discovered that one of the things that they did is they forced their people into failure. They actually required more of them than these people actually thought they could do. And your brain literally will will figure it out if it if you have like a near death experience, you'll remember that and remember how to get out of that situation better than you'd remember anything in your life. So basketball failure is not quite near death experience, though some people think missing a buzzer beater in front of thousands of people mm -hmm. is, but it's not quite. But it will still teach you things that will stay with you for a long time. And so when I read that book, it changed the way I coached. And I mean, this is just like probably, I think, five years ago. So, I mean, I've been coaching 20 years and and teach teach them my players to put themselves in situations where they don't fail. You know, I'm going to just put you in this one place because that's what you do well and you're not going to do anything else. And so I started changing my practices, changing my philosophy and how we played offensively and defensively to challenge us to take us further. And I was willing to lose if, if need be. And uh, so when we put in our system, we put in a press system, we put in a transition system that was new to us. I, remember, I'm going from like being Princeton guy, like reaction <laughs> offense, slow it down. 
and I went full bore pickup, run and jump press and transition basketball. We went from, I don't even know what we averaged my, the year before we went to it, but we might've close to doubled our offensive output, but in order to do it, I had to let these guys fail. And so I would let them press each other for seven to 10 minutes in practice. I'd let them transition for seven to 10 minutes and say, I'm not blowing a whistle. I'm just going to let you go. And you're going to learn really fast when it gets ugly, how to do this. And then I told them, we're not going to stop when we get into games. And we went up early in the season um, to a three, a team that's won a couple of state titles and, and we were at their gym, and we were getting thumped. And a couple of captains came over and said, Coach, we need to get out of this press. It is killing us. And I said, no, you're going to stay in the press and figure out how to do it or fail miserably. And lo and behold, we come back, and we actually won the game. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen every time, but they figured it out. And we had a very successful stretch as far as we've gone in the national tournament that year and and just did really well with those guys failing and then learning how to, uh, how to respond, which is the next thing. After you allow failure, you've got to teach them how to respond to failure. You've got to teach them that failure is not your identity. It's just a part of the process of becoming who you are. And so we would teach our kids how to respond to failure, how to respond to failing in possessions, how to respond to failing in school. How do you respond to failing uh, because you lost a game you shouldn't have lost? And so the teaching responses is a big deal to us. And I, I could spend a lot of time on that, but, um, but I think most people uh, have, would have a d different ways to do that. So, but that was a, uh, something we would focus on. And then uh, X's and O's standpoint, what we really valued was on defense. We weren't spectacular on the ball. A lot of times we were on a lot of points on dribble penetration. I remember hearing one opposing coach said, if you can just put the ball on the floor, you can get to the goal on these guys. <laughs> and so, and it was probably true. I mean, it was some truth to that. We were real quick. So we decided we were going to focus on being the best help and rotation team we could be. So we talked about endless and to the point where it felt like there were six guys on the floor, that we were always rotating. So we came up with breakdown drills, and I went and tried to seek out as much as I could find from college teams on how they taught their players to rotate. And so endless rotations were a big deal for us on defense. We spent a lot of time on it. And then uh, efficiency on offense was the deal that we uh, years ago, I came up with this metric that I uh, had on bad possessions versus good possessions. And for me, bad possession was a turnover or a contested shot. And I would give a little grace if someone was heat checking and they'd, they'd made six in a row or whatever. But basically, I wanted an open jumper, a layup for, or free throws. That's all I wanted. And mm -hmm. I wanted it 90 percent of the time, which. Looking back on it now is a little aggressive, but it was a good thing to shoot for. And I think my better teams would get into the low 80s for the season. Um, and on some games, we'd hit 90. But it would say, yeah, there's no room for a bad shot. We, we don't need to take a bad shot, especially in high school. We didn't have the shot clock. And so uh, it was a little different in that respect. But efficiency was a big deal to us. And that was a core principle that we are going to get great looks. And in order for us to get great looks, we've got to be better at being able to uh, make shots that we normally don't make. And so uh, how do we do that? We get better in practice. So our practices were very geared toward being efficient, uh, penalizing inefficiency, uh, doing drills to develop players in shots that they normally don't take so that they get better at taking those and get better at making those. Uh, we took a lot of shots. We took a lot of deep threes. We'd take 25 deep threes uh, per person per practice and include step backs in that, like step back NBA threes, just to get our guys 
a feeling like they could shoot them if they needed to. And how many of those do we really shoot in games? I don't know, but I can tell you, we made a couple of them in a national championship game that we won. And, and, and guys are like, how do those guys make those? I said, we shoot those every day in practice. We we're okay failing for months on end. And then they get comfortable shooting those things. So, uh, so anyway, efficiency was a big deal, but you got to train them into efficiency. Uh, so I'd say those are kind of our, our five chasing excellence, allowing failure, teaching responses, endlessly rotating and cherishing efficiency, treasuring those possessions. Uh, and all of that's built on that foundation of the wildcat way. And Trinity, uh, yeah, our culture is forward. So a lot of that stuff applies. I, I'd say we, uh, you know, we are very focused on the defensive things I've already talked about. We're a team that wants to be very good. We talk about three-sided possessions uh, as part of our efficiency, wanting to get the ball rotated unless we get, you know, a layup or a wide-open jumper for one of our better shooters. Um, but forward is our culture, and it means that we, we're, we're trying – all the guys who come to Trinity commit that we're going to try to move forward from a spiritual standpoint, from an academic standpoint, and from a basketball standpoint. And so we're not expecting someone to come and be, you know, they may not be a 3-5 student when they come in. They may be a 4-0 student, but are you willing to move forward even as a 4-0 student? You may look like the ultimate winner academically, but are you going to push yourself to be better academically? And so kids come in on the spectrum all over that map, and we want those young men to say in all these areas we're trying to move forward to being a better player and then a better teammate to help bring my teammate forward and when all that's happening we believe our program's going to move forward as well so that's kind of the foundation at trinity with a lot of the other things the same we chase excellence instead of wins uh we believe in allowing failure and allowing guys to learn um and then you know defensive and offensive principles are a little different in the systems but a lot of the same pieces i love that and what i love is your clarity i'm sitting here and um you know, we all have our own way of doing things and so forth, but I love how you have actually defined it and your players know they're very, you're very clear on what those five are, right? So a lot of times it's not being happened by a lot of coaches. They actually go to offense and defense first before they go to chasing excellence, allowing failure. Um, so I love how you explained that, and I appreciate your transparency. Hey, let's move forward to defensive philosophy. Give us kind of a breakdown of what you believe in an ideal defense should run, both from the high school and also what you're doing now at Trinity. Yeah, I would say uh, ideal, again, I'm, I've grown out of, like I think everybody should do it exactly this way. I love <laughs> – I love how Tony Bennett does his pack line thing. I respect that and love that. I've used that. Uh, I was taught um, early on to, in coaching to push guys toward the baseline, help, help from the baseline, drop opposite. Um, you know, we, we talked about the rotations and how you rotate. And, and so I've learned from Butler and Michigan State um, a lot on, on how, do we, how do we rotate. So that's what we choose to do. That's how I choose to teach. Um, but I think the main thing that I believe in defensively is that I believe players should constantly be trying to get better on the ball. Uh, I don't think anybody should just accept that I'm not an on the ball defender. And I think part of the issue is, am I willing to go guard somebody that I'm not capable, quote unquote, of guarding in order to get better? We did a ton of one on one station drills 
uh, when I coached in high school, I love one-on-one station drills because it exposes you. Yeah. You got bigs guarding guards. You got guards trying to guard bigs in the post. You know, we'd have a post station. We'd have a, a wing drive station. We'd have all these different stations and you got to guard all of it. And, and you only get points if you get stops and, and stay on defense if you get stopped. So it would force guys to have to guard different situations. Uh, we did, you know, you'd normal slide drills and, and things like that. But because in our run and jump press in high school, we had to guard a lot of different things. And I believe at the college level, uh, you end up having to switch. You end up having to stay longer on a ball screen or whatever. I think it helps guys to have confidence that, hey, I can, I can stop this guy. I can at least hold off long enough until help arrives or we might be able to switch back. And so I believe firmly in guys challenging themselves to get better on the ball and not just saying, well, I've got one on the ball guy or two on the ball guys. What if he gets in foul trouble? What if he gets hurt? Um, So I think no matter what defense you're in, if you run zone, if you run uh, man uh, pressure, if you run pack line, I think you've got to be good on the ball. And I think it behooves every coach to spend time good on the ball and not just accepting that guy's going to get blown by. Um, so that's one. I think second thing is I'm a firm believer in help. Uh, I, just, I believe that outside of a team that has, you know, five knockdown shooters where you've just got to stay at home and, and deal with the one-on-one at the rim or maybe you're staying home on three guys and you're just helping off the big and trying to drop down to him. You know, there obviously a lot of ways you can defend and rotate. But I believe in making teams make the extra pass and then make another one and then make another one because I think I can train my guys defensively to rotate more times than you're going to make either a good pass or turn down a bad shot. I think at some point someone's going to take a bad one. Hey, this is NBA skills coach Drew Hanlon of Pure Sweat Basketball, and you are listening to the Championship Vision Podcast. Hello, this is Craig Reed, owner and CEO of Corny Board Aids. We specialize in providing coaching aids and equipment for the basketball coach. We are also home of the Corny Board, the original sideline coaching board. I want to recommend Championship Vision Podcast. It is a great way to get insights into what other great coaches and leaders do in their programs. Kevin Furtado brings a great tool to coaches with this podcast. Thanks, Coach Furtado or make a bad pass that we might be able to deflect or get a hold of, or in our case now in college, the shot clock might come into play. And so I love making teams make the extra pass. And again, there are scouting report issues there where we stay home on people because we've got to, and we'll allow a dribble drive here and there. Um, But I love making guys make extra passes because it just, uh, I think the numbers are in your favor that someone's going to crank one up that shouldn't. Then then I really, I believe in the check, find, get uh, rebounding system, which is a little, um, I, I grew up learning the box out, turn your back and drive your rear end into their knees and all that stuff. But then when I picked up on Tom Izzo's check, find, get, I've really fallen in love with that, um, uh, where you're basically only turned halfway. You're just trying to make contact to slow a crashing defender, and then you're finding the ball. Uh, it, when you practice that a lot, uh, you, I think you train your guys to learn how to judge the flight of the ball because you take your eyes off the ball for a second to go find a guy and then right. return to it. But you've already figured out where it's going if you've done it enough. It's, again, something you need to drill 
Um, but I believe you can drill it. And so we would drill that. We would drill. Uh, we really worked on We'd break down station and go through situations a lot. I'm a firm believer in showing guys situationally what happens if. And again, at the college level, you know where guys are generally set up based on what teams run. But at, high, at the high school level where we were preparing, we didn't have as much time to prepare uh, for opponents. Uh, we did a lot of general motion breakdowns in defense. Like if, if post has to drop down to the baseline and help here, top guy needs to drop and pick up the floating post just below the elbow. You know, you, And we would just work on that over and over and over again. Every practice we'd spend six to seven minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot of time. But if you're doing it every practice and they're going through all these different scenarios, it's amazing how good they get it. Just kind of almost robotically, they see it happen and they go. So I, I believe in drilling that kind of stuff, both in the full court if you're pressing and the half court if you're not. And if you've got great ball pressure, you got help in rotation, and you've got guys that are determined to check, you, you may not have the best athletes to rebound. You may not be the strongest, but you've got guys that are going to check and find the ball. You're going to get a good amount of them which will reduce the uh, offensive rebounding ratio. I think that's, that's kind of my defensive philosophy in a nutshell. I've tended to do a lot more of uh, ball pressure, uh, denying uh, passing lanes, turning it down to the baseline. That's just been who, I, who I've been. Uh, but ball screens, like I used to just be a hedge-only guy, and now I've embraced uh, jamming and turning it down and, uh, soft help and different things. I think that's I've turned into more scouting report related on that. Jeremy, tell me about we're a pressing team and I um, I love your uh, run and jump tape. So I, I want to learn. I want to get just a, some details on some of your uh, what you do with your run and jump and some of the toughest. What are the toughest things to guard? Obviously, dribble penetration. If you're out there pressuring, give us a little give, give us a little uh, schematic. Uh, picture of your defense and strengths and weaknesses of uh, the defense you ran it more at the home school. Yeah. Yeah. The run and jump is such a fun uh, defense because I think it's, it's nearly impossible to simulate in practice. I think because uh, you, you have to teach it in order to simulate it. And it, it takes a long, it takes a while to teach because you, you've got to, teach people reads and uh, that's not easy to do and it's definitely not easy to do in a week so uh, so I think that's a strength of it is it's just so hard to prepare for uh, it's very unpredictable it, you can morph it in a lot of different ways I think by far the the more some of the most things to guard in my years of running it were uh, bigs that bigs that could handle who you could not only throw the ball up to you know, to get out of a trapping situation, but then who could put it on the floor enough um, to where you couldn't rely on them to turn it over or hold it for a second for you to rotate. So they could see the floor. Uh, they, you know, they could catch it. They could see the floor and then they could maybe put it on the ground and hurt you that way. Uh, obviously you don't run into a ton of people like that, um, but they they exist. And I remember games where uh, an adequate big that could handle it would make that press quite as effective unless you could somehow force the guards to turn it over before they got it. Um, and so, so that, that's one thing. I think uh, the, the other thing that would occasionally hurt it is uh, just maybe a configuration that we just never seen before. And so someone might run something at us. Uh, I remember one team was really good early 
at in a game at running up a wing that to a spot that we weren't used to seeing getting it and jetting somebody that that uh the trapper would be leaving and and so chase changing things on the fly was a little more difficult you know in game when you're trying to adjust to something that you haven't seen but the good news is that you could typically say okay well we're just gonna i i had what we called single stay which was okay we're just gonna when the ball goes here we're not trapping and when it when this happens we're not trapping so if they if they're trying to jet somebody we might single stay on the first pass and then say when that guy thinks he's okay now we're gonna go get him um so uh obviously if they've got like the world's best point guard then that makes any press difficult um and we've had we would occasionally struggle against teams that had lights out like world beater point guards. Uh, but again, if you can keep it out of their hands to begin with and maybe give them a little more attention on the inbound, um, then if they get it, you say, okay, we're just not going to trap that guy. We're, we're going to just pressure him and make him work to get it up. Uh, those are adjustments that need to be made. But the thing that I found from it, uh, and why I think we succeeded at it as well as we did is we were willing to make adjustments. We weren't after turnovers. I think that's a huge part of it. You cannot just want turnovers uh, because if they, you'll gamble, you'll, you'll, you'll decide you want to do something that you shouldn't just because you're not getting enough steals. You've got to be able to score the basketball without scoring off turnovers uh, because you'll, you'll get greedy. Uh, otherwise. And so I think that was something we emphasized early on. I figured out we can't, and I think, um, I don't remember who I got that from. I think it might've been Billy Donovan that talked about, you can't mm -hmm. focus on turnovers. And, uh, and so we just said, we want uh, to deflect. And uh, when we deflect that's that's sometimes enough to shake, a, disrupt what they're doing so that they're not comfortable bringing that ball up the floor. And then we want to defend. We want to defend the arc and the rim. We're not just trying to press so that you can get a quick shot and score two while we go get three. It's not that system. It's it's we want to defend and we want to we 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 want to hold you to no points on that possession uh, by disrupting, deflecting, and then guarding the right people when we get out of it, making sure we're rotating to the top guys first. And so I thought that was kind of the the strengths of what we developed there. Uh, and yet there were challenges and there were definitely teams that beat us uh, and made us change what we did. But I, I never felt like I never felt like I couldn't apply pressure. It was just a matter of how much pressure I was going to apply. But that um, I, I know a coach um, that I interviewed a while back and he says um, pressing is a way of life. A lot of coaches don't press. It sounds like pressing was a way of life you're going to win or lose but you're going to stay with it but you're also going to be smart pressing too so right. you are trying to win but it is sounds like it was a way of life for you at the homeschool yes it was it, it became that and uh i think there were years the first year we did it we had actually look back now and i think it might have helped us in ways i didn't realize we were we were pretty poor in the half court defensively and i think it hid that a little bit um and then there were teams that I had later uh, that uh, my even my last year where we pressed selectively. I wouldn't I wouldn't say, you know, we it, it probably couldn't. If you watched our videos, you wouldn't say it had it was a way of life for us with that team. 
Uh, but we might do it for a quarter. We might do it for a half. We might, you know, we might do it in spots. And, and it was more because of who I had with that group and the fact we were only, I think, six deep uh, with that group. And yet they were one of more, our more successful groups. And when they did it and when they pulled it out, they did it really well. And we still practiced it a lot. You know, it was even though we didn't use it for 32 minutes like I did in 2015, um, when we used it, we were effective. I mean, we jumped teams. Maybe we used it at the beginning of the game and jumped teams and built a lead. Maybe we waited and pulled it out to start the second half. I mean, it was, we would just use it in different spots and, and it was always there and we knew we had it and it was just a matter of how we were going to use it. So, um, so I don't know how to describe that. I, I think way of life would definitely describe 2015. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you this, the, the principles of it and the rotations of it are a way of life. And I think right. you can apply that to the half court uh, always that if you're in that mindset, um, you can play a run and jump help. If you will, you're not necessarily trapping, but you're always thinking about this guy dribbles into my area. I'm the guy going and I'm trusting people to rotate behind me. And that is a way of life. And I'd say that's what we, we got better in the half court because we did that in the full court. Yeah, that's a great point. I had one old coach tell me one time, he says, Coach, you cannot be really good at full court defense and half court defense. And I don't, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree. That. I don't yeah. agree with that. I don't believe it. Yeah. It's one yeah. package, right, Jeremy? It's one, all one package. Yeah. Well, it, it should be. I, you can teach it and, and neglect the half court. And there's no question about that. You can, you can just say, this is who we're going to be. Yeah. And, and we're going to just not be good at that. Of course, if you, if you want to give that away, my wife thinks I'm overly optimistic about a lot of things, but I, I think, I think you can definitely, uh, definitely do it. And the realist in you though, and that's why I'm, I believe I'm married to my wife because she's a good check to my <laughs> aggressive optimism is, uh, you do need to be realistic and say, well, if I'm not going to be a, only a half court or only a full court defensive guy, well, then I have to drill down in the half court. I can't spend all my time right. on the full court. I have to make sure guys understand I am not letting you off the hook in the half court just because we're pressing. And that's what we made clear. Like, we're not just going to give up buckets because we're pressing. That's not the point of this. And I'm going to hold you accountable in your half court defense. And I think that what a coach emphasizes is what you're going to get. You know, if we don't emphasize it, we had meetings like that this year at the college level where we said, you know, we're frustrated we're not getting this, but are we emphasizing it enough? And if we're not emphasizing it enough, then that's on us. Right. You know, that's not on the players. So I believe you can be good at both. Yeah. Uh, but it takes time. It takes time, and you had better break it down. You had better make it um, – you can't be av- – you definitely can't be – uh, satisfied with being average at it because if you just say, if you say, well, we want to be kind of good in the half court and great at pressing, well, then that's what you're going to be. You know, you, you've got to spend a good amount of time and, and we would have practice plans and we would talk and say, what are we missing out on watching video? We, I, I analyzed every game where we gave up points and we broke down every single game, how many points we were giving up off closeouts, how many games were we giving off rotations, how many did we give up in transition? And so we were constantly looking at that, and that would guide our practice plans to say, how do we sure up these areas? And I think that's, that's what you need to do because you can't cover everything every day. Right. So you're going to have to lay the foundation in the preseason and in the summer, and then uh, during the season you got to fix things. 
as they come up. Yeah, and, and I love that. I love your breakdown of it. I really appreciate your uh, your insight into that. Hey, let's um, let's go into your offensive philosophy and just kind of share with us what you believe in. And I know it's um, at the high school level. Man, I think I saw you guys average like 85 points a game, man. Please share with us how you guys scored that many points. Oh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, again, it's it's something that uh, was amazing to jump into going from being a, a Princeton uh, coach. I, I would say uh, I have become a coach that isn't married to scoring, to only scoring points. Um, I am a coach that believes firmly nowadays in what they call points per possession, right. you know, that I want to be really, really efficient. But it is, I will tell you this, if you want to be a popular coach, then you go ahead and score a boatload of points because your fans will love you, <laughs> <laughs> your, sure. your players will love you. And uh, when we un- unveiled that system, I have been at a coaching clinic in Seymour, Indiana, and uh, Tom Crean was at uh, IU at the time and uh, came up and shared on his transition offense. And I had already committed that I was going to be doing the run and jump that year with this personnel that we had. And uh, I was going to jump into that boat. And so then I, I saw him unveil this transition offense that he ran and the way he got into it. And I said, wow, that is beautiful. Like, I think I can do that. Now, again, that was pretty overly optimistic for me since it was September when I saw that. And we started practice in October with some new pieces um, and when I got those guys, I said, okay, here we go. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it. And I said, and we're going to unveil it in game one, no matter what, no matter how bad it is. Cause again, we were on that failure thing. If we fail at it, we fail at it. Well, we were playing a rival who we had end up playing in the state championship at the end of the year. So it wasn't just, we're playing some cupcake that we can run this on and get good at it. We knew these guys were good and we're playing them at their gym first game of the year and I said here we go guys you know we'll see how good we are at this and and uh at halftime I believe the score was 65 37 our league (laughs) and I remember walking into the locker room thinking well that went better than I thought that's right (laughs) and it it just gave the guys so much freedom which is I think I think again if it if my if you could sum up my offense and what I believe in I really believe in training your guys so well that they have the freedom to make great decisions and reads in the moment without feeling like they're going to answer to you for that read. You know, can you train your guys up to be good enough or ladies up to be good enough to where, to where they know the reads and now you're putting them in a situation where they're, where they're operating freely. I love to run. I'll always love transition basketball. I do know that some personnel, maybe that doesn't work as well. And so maybe not everyone's going to be a transition team. But it was so much fun to watch these guys shoot with confidence, to run, to like there were times where a team would lay it up on us. And within three seconds, we laid it up on the other hand, on the other end. And I remember scorekeepers behind me saying, what is going on? I didn't even see who put that ball in the basket. I was still writing down the last one and being able to punch back is so much fun. You know, you, you get scored on in games, but to train people to not duck your head, let the ball bounce three times. We said it, it does not hit the ground. If it hit the ground in practice coming out of the net, then there, you know, you were going to, 
have to do something for that. We kept track of that. And you got the ball out, and within seconds, you're laying the ball up at the other end, and that team's thinking, wait, we just scored, and yet that was erased in moments. And now I'm getting pressed, you know, which was which was fun too. So so anyway, that, that was the philosophy at the time was to run and run and run. And it, it wasn't sloppy. We were not tolerating sloppiness. I still wanted 90% efficiency. I did not want to turn the ball over. Uh, we threw a lot of full core passes, but we didn't throw them if we weren't going to get them. And so that, that was the philosophy, uh, but it had a lot of freedom in it. It went into, you know, motion principles. We played some five out. We did a lot of different things and we still had set plays and things like that, that we ran. Uh, but boy, it was a lot of fun. And I remember the first game we lost that year as a Christmas tournament, we lost 110 to 103 wow. and in uh, double overtime. So I wouldn't have gotten into the hundreds. I don't think unless the, uh, obviously unless the overtime, had, but it was still <laughs> like a lot of points. Right. And I remember coming out of locker room first loss of the year, we were 10 and Oh, I think at the time we lost. And I remember our fans saying, wow, that was so much fun. And I said, I'm sitting there going, we just lost. You know? right. I like, and I did, I, we gave the game away. We gave it away in regulation. We gave it away in overtime. And so, but man, our fans had a blast with it. So I guess there was that at least, but now I've moved, I've moved into, I, I would say, you know, I'm not transition exclusively. And I, the last few years I changed into a transition ball screen because again, personnel driven, um, I had guys that I felt were really, really good making reads off of ball screens. And so I wanted to hit uh, the defense with transition screens before they got into uh, in, or got set uh, a lot. Like I, I kind of followed uh, what Dan Tony did with Harden and, and using him as a ball handler and giving him screens. And so, mm -hmm. so I, I did a lot uh, with that in the last few years that it was still transition. We were still running, but it might've looked a little slower than we were before because we were only throwing the ball up to the corner. If that guy was going to get an open shot, we'd send a lights out shooter to the corner uh, where before we'd send, you know, uh, more of a slasher or shooter to the wing in our previous transition. This time our scores had the ball in transition and they were only pitching it up if it was a rim runner or a corner shooter. Uh, but we still got so much good stuff in transition. I think it's such a good time to hit defenses. You don't have to do it, you know, and make that the like only way you score. But, boy, defenses are not ready for it. Because, again, how do you prep for it? How do you prep for it in practice? How do you make your team, if you're not a transition team, run every time the ball goes through the net? Teams aren't used to doing that. So it's hard to prepare for a team coming down your throat with all five guys running to spots um, if you've not practiced it before. And so, inevitably, one or two people are lost. And if your guard's good enough to find where that person lost, then you're going to pay for right. it or at least get an open look. And that's what I loved about it. Yeah. And I think at the high school level, and I know it's different coach at the, the college level, and that's a whole different podcast there. I, I really feel the game at the college level needs to open up more, but I, I know why a lot of the coaches don't because it, it's, it's very difficult to find the right players and so forth. But they, I, I think by playing an exciting brand of game like you guys did at the homeschool, I think it's a big part of enjoyment of the game, and I think the kids love playing it, right? Oh, they did, yeah. I mean, it was conditioning was brutal. I can tell you that. The, yeah, we and we didn't we didn't just straight condition. We do off season. We might, but we didn't just straight run. But everything we did was going 
you know, at pace, uh, all the drills, we try to do a lot of full court drills. Even if we're in the half court, it's go, go, right. go, go, go. We didn't take, we had one minute water breaks and then you're right back into a drill. that's sure. moving you, uh, moving guys around six goals and stations quickly. And so guys were worn out when they got done with practice and they had to be so that we'd be in shape. So that part was brutal, uh, for guys, but, um, but it was worth it when in a game you, you felt like you, uh, you had the upper hand that in the fourth quarter they're dying and you're still going. Uh, so that, that was fun. And scoring a lot of points is fun. I mean, who doesn't love scoring points? And I think the, the pressing can be harder when you're getting beat in it. But if you're trained again, to take that basket that just went through and take it right back down at them. And you're not thinking about where you just failed or where, where you just messed up until you've got to get in that press again then that's fun too. Like kids don't like sitting there having to dwell on their mistakes. So train them to transition, not just in a, in a pace idea, but transition from one play to the next uh, quickly. And that, I think that helped us too. It freed them up from their mistakes a lot of times until we had to address it in a timeout or when we subbed them out. Right. And I want you to go right into your practice philosophy, uh, Jeremy, and that, uh, because I think, I, I think, I think coaches need to, practice how they're going hey this is nba skills coach drew hanlon of pure sweat basketball and i'd love to help you get game results this season check out a free trial of my pure sweat training app on the google play and app store today hi i'm alex stevenson athletic director and girls basketball coach at dodd city i've been at dodd city for seven years during those seven years we've won seven district championships been to six regional tournaments and three state championship games. I'm a huge fan of this podcast, what it brings and the platform that we're able to share knowledge and wisdom on and, and grow as coaches. To play, because if you want to be a running system and a pressing system, you better practice in the full court, right? Yeah. I think uh, you've got to – not just practice in the full court, but you've got to ask yourself, what is it you want? Uh, what are the outcomes that you want? What are the things that you want to see your guys doing? Because um, if you just put your first team out there against your second team, are they going to turn the second team over? Yep. Are they going to score on the second team? Yep. I mean, it, it, that's going to happen. So what are you, you've got to really be detailed. I think you've got to, I learned along the way, to assign my assistants certain things to be looking for or certain things to be coaching because I can't, you can't see everything. Uh, even the captains, you know, let's be watching for this and you give, give captains a lot of freedom to correct things that they see uh, because you can be pressing and turning people over, but still not making great rotations and uh, or great decisions. And so a uh, team may break your press and not be able to score uh, and in practice. And yet you've got to be able to say that we, we don't allow open threes out of the press. Uh, the, sure they missed the last three of them, but we just allowed three open threes and the opponent on Saturday is going to kill us if that happens. So, so what are you trying, what are the outcomes you're trying to get? And I think you need to communicate those clearly when you're practicing, uh, in the full court, half court, whatever. And the challenge we had as a homeschool team too, is we only got the gym four out of uh, four days out of the week, we were paying for that time. You know, we were paying about $20,000 a year in gym rentals fees. And so kids are paying money to be on our team. They're paying to be in the gym. You got to use that time. You can't just be lollygagging 
through practice. And so we tried to maximize our practice time. Uh, we didn't, like I said, use up a lot of time just running. Everything had to do with mm-hmm. basketball. Um, we broke down the press one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four. We did a three-on-one pre- uh, press recover. I think that might be in my video, but um, that, that just got them working on all the different aspects of what they'd have to do in the press uh, and kept the practice moving. And then when it came to scrimmaging, uh, we want to start to apply those things. So we practice the shots we're going to take. Uh, you know, if we're running the ball screen offense, we've gone through all the different ball screen reads, all the different ways that the defense can guard it. Uh, we've practiced all those things in three on three, four on four. Now it's time to go five on five. And what are we trying to get out of it? What look do we want to get? Because we know the defense is going to do this against us next week. And, and so the outcomes were important. The efficiency was important. Um, and then we had to do something, I think, we wanted uh, the bench to be strong. You have to get your bench involved uh, all the way down to some years we had 12, some years we had 15, but how do you keep the bench involved? We were at times practicing with the JV team. So you might have the JV down at one half court and you're at the other half court. How do you maximize that time? And then, uh, then how do you get them involved so that they're learning at a fast pace, not just at a JV pace. And so uh, we would, we would, throw them into five on five continuous four on four four on four on four five on five on five continuous where if you get scored on you're off other team goes the other way and and uh and another team comes on very quickly so it keeps the practice moving keeps players engaged and not falling asleep on the sideline or checking out and uh we wanted it and that way we felt like we were developing as many guys as we could to fit in the system in case of injuries or foul trouble or things like thing we did that i think helped us a lot uh with disparity which i think a lot of high school coaches struggle with is disparity in talent from top to bottom at the homeschool level we had that we had guys that were college basketball players at the top and then we had guys at the bottom that were there because that was the sport they choose to play and they really didn't work on their game as much and so how do you deal with those guys scrimmaging against each other the only choices we had were kill the second team with the first team or (laughs) or have the second team and first team mixed, which sometimes steals reps from guys getting to play with each other and getting to know each other. So uh, I don't remember where I got it, honestly, but uh, I heard about this game called Chase the Ghost, and I've loved it ever since. And so uh, basically if your team, uh, first team has the ball and they go down and score, they get points for it, whatever it is. And you can, uh, one thing that we did to emphasize outcomes was give different point values for things. We had minus two for turnovers, plus one offensive rebound, layups worth three, a three's worth three, but a mid-range jumper off the dribble's worth one, regular jumpers worth two. So we did it. We did all these types of things to emphasize outcomes. But the trick with Chase the Ghost was that if you got stopped by the second team, then the second team got an automatic five points. So you could come down the floor and score on the second team, get a layup. Maybe you got three points for that layup. And then down at the other end, you get a stop. You come down the next time, you take a bad shot, and they get a rebound, and they get five points for it. And so now they're up 5-3 with the ball. And so we got our first team getting obliterated, like 90-50, to 50, uh, because they were, especially in that early transition time, they were just so used to running in and not quote-unquote paying for bad shots that they were getting lazy with it and so we said like we need something to do to emphasize 
that they can't just take a bad shot and not pay for it. And so this chase the ghost really worked and it, it made them run things a lot cleaner, made it forced them to make better reads. It forced them to pass up good shots for great shots, even while playing fast. Um, and, and eventually they got to where they won those chase the ghost games and weren't as frustrated early on. They almost, uh, they acted like they couldn't do it. Like coach, we can't win this game. I mean, it was crazy to see how defeated they were early on in it. But it, uh, it kept them engaged, and they wanted to beat it. And eventually they figured out how to, and it, and it allowed us to develop the second team and still uh, have the first team uh, get what we wanted out of it. And I think one year we, we did that in our uh, – what we had it was our red, white, and blue scrimmage, our preseason intra-squad scrimmage. And we decided yeah. we're going to – instead of mixing the teams up like we normally would, we're going to do first team against second team and do it chase the ghost. And I think they won 120 to 36 or something. And, that, and that's right. in Chase the Ghost. Like that's, right. the, that's, that, that's the other team. I think the, other, I think the second team only had like four or five field goals and everything else was five points for getting a stop. But they, that's how clean they played uh, in that. And it was fun. Yeah, and I love that. Matter of fact, I'm stealing that. I love how um... – I love how you're giving plus five, though. That's a lot of points for a stop. But I, I think what it does, though, it gives your second team confidence to even play harder. Because a lot of times, don't you agree, Jeremy? If you just go first against second team and the second game, second team just quits. Yeah, they can. They can I just mean, say, what, what's the point here? And, and then your, your second team not getting anything out of it, your first team not getting anything out of it. And uh, it's weird because um, – like it always kind of blew my mind a little bit. I'm like, you're on the second team for a reason. Why aren't you trying to get on the first team? But we all have a button, what I call the quit button. And eventually that thing gets pushed. And when it gets pushed, it's hard to unpush it, you know, and to get right. re-motivated. So I think that chase the ghost was very beneficial. And then another thing we did last year that I thought turned our season around. Actually, once we did this, we never, we didn't lose the rest of the season. Now, I don't, don't have coaches calling and emailing me saying they implemented this and then lost, and it's my fault. So <laughs> right. but we, we had gotten to where we were really struggling to have a defensive mindset. It wasn't that we weren't defending, but we weren't defending consistently. And we, we were up 14 on a ranked team on the road. And uh, at, at, it was a 1A school, but still a ranked team. We thought we could beat them. when we got up 14 in the first quarter. And – then little by little, just weren't doing things on the defensive end, didn't take care of the ball, but it was mainly defense. Let them back in the game. They end up beating us by three. And I remember going to that locker room. I was so defeated. I felt so down. I, it was as down as I felt as a coach that I remember. I'm sure there were probably other times. But it was the shortest postgame speech I've ever given. I remember my, my son who played JV, uh, he said one of the, his JV teammates said, oh, this is going to take a while as they were walking in the locker room. <laughs> And uh, I actually came in and said, this is on me. I have not figured out how to motivate you guys to defend, and I will figure it out. And we'll practice on whatever day it was, you know, see a practice on Friday or I don't know what. But anyway, so the next practice, I just had this. I just thought, what can I do to make these guys guard? They love to play offense, but they don't love to play defense. I said, you're not going to get the ball until you get seven straight stops on the second team. And – I needed to put the number out there far enough that the second team surely could score once every seven possessions. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. so, and you talk about the second team, boy, they love that. We're going to have the ball all day in practice. And, and the amazing thing was 
that the second team executed really well. And as I thought the first team defense wasn't too bad. And yet the second team is making contested shots. I mean, here they played three great possessions, got three stops in a row. And second team, some guy throws up a garbage thing and maybe banks it in. And it's like, nope, you're starting over. <laughs> so it was a brutal practice for that first group. And actually, the first time they got their seventh stop, they were so used to putting the ball down because if they got a stop, they just have to set. And uh, the first time they got the seventh stop, the guy robotically put the ball down and the other team picked it up and laid it in and they were back to zero again. So <laughs> it, it was it was a brutal practice. And yet within two or three practices and after practice, uh, after like two or three practices, the guy said, we love defense now. And we're and they were grateful that that they had figured it out so we took it into games i think the next time we played we were on the road again at like a 3a team and and they, they were about 500 but they were very capable of beating us um and i wouldn't say we were like uh dramatic uh favorites in the game or anything because again i'm like is this going to actually work are we going to guard and we went in and said we're going to count out loud from the bench and on the floor every stop we get and we're going to keep track as we go and so uh, we got in that game, the, we got the first, uh, in the first 17 possessions, we got stops. Our guys are yelling nine, 10, 11, 12. And we stopped them in the first 17 possessions and we're up 21 to nothing, uh, before, you know, before they finally got a bucket. And, and that was fun. And, and we kept that going through the rest of the year where we were counting stops and, and, uh, that, that was a game changer for us. And I, I would, uh, I'd a- encourage any coach uh, to kind of implement that as another way to balance it out. It doesn't have to be seven. Texas Tech, I found out after the fact, I found out they do that and they, they do three uh, stops as their, as their uh, max. So uh, just put in what you think, and I think it'll help teach them to love defense a little bit more and execute it. Yeah, I love the emphasis there. Of course, I guess at Texas Tech, there's more equal talent. The second team is right. not as – I mean, of course, at our level, is there's a big there's a big disparity, like you said, um, Coach. Hey, man, I really appreciate you sharing, man. I, and I want to have you leave us with one last piece of advice that you can help maybe a young coach coming into coaching, maybe this June, that you have learned from all your experiences. Wow. Um, well, I'll, I allow me to give you two. One I one I got from Pete Carrill, and the other one from my dad. So. Okay. Uh, first, uh, first one from Pete Carrell. I was a, I was had only been coaching a year, and it was Pete Carrell's. Uh, it just the day before or two days before upset UCLA in that famous game at the RCA Dome in Indianapolis. I was blessed enough to be there and uh, work in the tournament, and then uh, the, they lost to Mississippi State, who ended up going to the Final Four that year. I think. Anyway, Carrell's coming off. He's retired. He's walking through the hallway, and I just happened to be walking there too. And I just said, Coach, I'm a young coach you have any advice from i just really appreciated looked up to what you've done and it was just a real neat experience for me to even meet him and he just turned to me and he said yeah he said i've got some advice for you he said avoid 23 point losses that was a solid advice i got so avoid 23 point losses would be one but then second uh, my dad when i was going through a real hard time i was just a jv coach and I was taking it so hard. And I remember my wife would tell you, I took elementary losses hard. I was a varsity assistant in my first job and coaching the sixth grade team. And I would take those losses hard. And, and I felt I was most frustrated. I couldn't get guys to do what I want them to do. And I think every coach runs into that where they just get so far. Why can't I get these people to do what I want them to do? 
And my dad, uh, when I got home that night, could tell I was, you know, really upset. I was living at home when I was doing grad school at the time. And, and he said to me, he said, son, let me tell you something. If you are going to let your happiness and your ability to cope with life rely on whether a teenager executes what you ask them to do, you are going to have a rough, rough life and coaching career. <laughs> and, and that really, it, it hit me at the time, but it hit me even more so years later uh, when I was still struggling with how I responded to guys not executing. I think my identity was still too wrapped up in whether I was a winner or not. And, and I would say that's a, that's a worst thing that we can do for teens is to put the pressure on them to hold up our happiness and our peace and our, and, and our career, you know, they've got enough pressure on them already and they're not perfect. And yeah, sometimes they're being flat out selfish and rebellious, but, uh, but it's up to us to be mature and to, to be the ones who handle it the right way and realize that my identity isn't wrapped up in what they do. I'm either a good coach or not based on what I tell them to do and how I, and how I handle their uh, failures more than I think whether I've won or lost a game and I think coaching's moved away from that fear tactic, you know, of, of just inspiring nothing but fear. And that's why they do what they do. I think true teachers are able to walk through failure with kids, able to walk through rebellion, walk through laziness and figure out how to motivate um, without it costing us our, uh, our, you know, psyche, our marriages, our home life, our, you know, it, it shouldn't cost us that to do what we're doing and the key is to have the right perspective. And I, I really feel like it even hit me at one point that it was almost like, and again, I'm a spiritual person. I've uh, had faith growing up in a household of faith. But, it, but at one point, I really felt like it was like the Lord almost asking me, like, do I treat you this way when you mess up? And, it, and that was like, whoa, no, you know, that's not. You, you forgive me. You walk with me in it. And, and it really changed the way I, I tried to handle and it, by, by all means, do I jump on guys still? Yes, I do. You know, do I do some guys need you to just quickly bark at them and say, hey, wake up? Yeah, but it doesn't affect my identity anymore. And that's my advice I give to coaches. Don't let it get to your identity and don't let it control who you are, especially especially outside the game. Uh, and don't let it steal the joy of the game from you. Yeah, I love that because I, I think. I think you said a lot there. Uh, and of course, your foundation is responding to failure in the correct way. And from what I sense is you never fail. You learn, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yep. And so the guy doesn't listen to me. Well, I better learn that didn't work. <laughs> so exactly. how do I get yeah. him to listen to me, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or maybe he's not going to listen to me. What do I do about that? So, yeah, responding to failure is so key because we're going to continue to fail. Uh, you know that I haven't, I haven't found that perfect coach or that perfect player yet. Coach, how can uh, if somebody want to get a hold? What's the best way to get a hold of um, hold of you? Uh, whether that's email or number or social say, social uh, media. Uh, probably the easiest way uh, initially, and that's just my name, Jeremy dot at trnty dot edu, uh, and uh, you shoot me an email. I'm I'll get back in touch with you and maybe call or whatever we can. I, I'd love to talk basketball with any coach that's wanting to talk about it. Coach, thank you so much for sharing, man. And um, I appreciate you coming back to me. 
And uh, Sharon, again, man, I, I hope everything works out and make sure you stay healthy because we're in a tough time right now. Yeah, so thanks absolutely. again. Absolutely. Thank you. I'll look forward to following you as you get more and more guys time. I appreciate the time. Yeah. Thanks, uh, coach. Have a great night. Thank you. Hey, this is NBA skills coach Drew Hanlon of Pure Sweat Basketball, and I've been working hard to build an online basketball school to help players and coaches. I'd love for you to check it out at puresweatbasketball.com. Hey, coaches, this is Brad Hillegas, content producer at Huddle for the NBA, NCAA Division I, and high school basketball. I'm a big fan of Coach Furtado's podcast, Championship Vision, because it connects coaches around the country that want to continue learning and growing our beloved game. The X's and O's, coaching philosophy, teaching principles, they're all here. And that's a mission that we're working on at Huddle as well. More than 160,000 teams, including the best in the world, use Huddle to elevate their performance with video. But our collection of online tools is much more than that. Mobile desktop apps, smart cameras, video editing, data analytics software, the list goes on. But our goal is to help coaches like you teach the game in a modern way, whether that's connecting with your athletes, communicating your game plan, or looking to gain a competitive edge. And if you want to see how Huddle can help your program, visit Huddle.com. That's H-U-D-L.com to learn more. And of course, keep listening to the Championship Vision podcast to never stop learning.